Well, good morning, and we're going to continue in on our in our series in the Gospel of John, and and what we're going to be in is John 11, talking about Lazarus being risen out of the grave, and so it's a great story, a great miracle. But before we start start talking about the story, let me just ask you a question: Have you ever been in the place where you are something's laid on your heart, and you are praying to God? maybe for weeks or however long the time frame might be, and you're praying that God would just change the situation, the circumstances that might be going on in your life. And I think it's really easy to feel like in those moments of there's, it seems like there's silence and there's unknown to be going, hey, where's God in the middle of all this? Is he, does he even care? Why does it seem like God's late? And I think the story of Lazarus is a great story to remind us, even in the middle of the unknown, or, hey, what is God doing in this moment? That God is still at work in the middle of the unknown. So it starts like this in John chapter 11, verse, starting in verse 1. Now a man was sick. Lazarus from Bethany, the the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and loved Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. You know, if you, maybe like me, and you you care about somebody, and you're hearing they're not doing well, I think for me, it would be I want to go, because I want to go and I want to be near the people that I love, especially as they're walking through a, a time period of, of hardship. But Jesus waits. Why? The ultimate answer is in verse 4, so that God would be glorified through it. You know, there's going to be a ton of reasons, maybe, why you might be going through a, a, a low, a valley in your life. Like, uh, the Bible tells us, like in Abraham, the illustration there, the story of Abraham, that Abraham was tested from God. So he goes through this hardship, this difficult part of his life where he's being tested by God, and he's just has to obey. And the unknown, the, and, and, and it's even being scary for him to trust. And in him trusting, his son Isaac was saved. And God was glorified. So you might be going through a, a difficult season in your life because you're being tested. Will you be faithful through it? But you could also be going through a difficult season because of the fact 
of your sin, as a direct result of your sin, like the story of David, right? David sins. Even though he repents, ultimately uh, what happens is there's still discipline. There's still a, a fallout because of his sin. And even though he goes through this hard season of his life where he's probably going, I don't know, understand fully why. He's just trusting God through it, worshiping God through it. And God was glorified. You, it could be because of your sin. And hopefully, if it is because of your sin, you're going through a difficult part of your life. Hey, you, you need to repent and come to a right relationship with God. Come back to him, right? But hey, you could be going through something difficult because of somebody else's sin. Like they lied, they cheated. Now you're hurt. You're in pain because of it. It's like, it's like uh, Joseph, right? Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers. His brother's sin causes Joseph to be in slavery. But even though someone else has caused the sin, Joseph's going through, has a season, his life is in chaos, but God starts to work. And for us, as we read the story, we're like, yeah, look at how God is working. But for Joseph, he, he, there would have been moments where he's like, is God even there? But God was at work through it all. So at the end of the story, what's going to happen? That God would be glorified. You can also be just going through hardship because of the fact that our world is fallen. It's broken. Like, like there's macro level events around us, like an earthquake. And we just saw it. And, it. and it's pain, suffering, death, hurricanes, pain, suffering, death. It's chaos. Why? Because the world is broken. It's fallen. There's micro level events. Like their cells aren't functioning the way they're supposed to function. Like in John 9, when Jesus encounters the blind man and the disciples are coming to him and saying, hey, Jesus, who sinned? Was it this guy or was it his parents? And Jesus is like, neither. This, this isn't the result of sin. This is the result of, it is, in a sense, the result of sin. It's the result of the fallen world, disobedience to God. Because of the world rebelling against God, there's pain, hurt, suffering in it. As a result. But God says, and gives us a promise in Romans 8, 28, and he says, and we know Get this, we know that God causes all things, everything to work together for the good of those who love him. To those who are called according to his purpose. So even in the middle of your hardship, your pain and suffering, God is at work for your good and his glory. For your good and his glory.
He's working, even though you might not understand why or how, or how is this all going to play out. He's at work for your good and his glory. Our job is to trust. And there's, a, there's a saying my, my wife and I, we started using because it's easy to worry, right? But we know in the Bible, it's telling us we shouldn't be anxious for anything. But everything that we, we should give thanks to God, we hand it over to him. So it's easy to, to worry, and one of the things that causes us to worry, and I've started thinking about it, is it's all the what-if scenarios. It's like, hey, what if this happens, or this happens, this happens, and it's me trying to take the control from God and say, I'm going to try to fix it. I'm going to try to think through everything so that this doesn't happen. But what I'm doing is I'm just anxious and worrying. It doesn't solve anything. So we, what we say in my house is we turn our what-ifs to even-ifs. We take the what-ifs. And what we're told in Scripture is to cap, take captive your thoughts. Captivate those things. So we take captive the what-if and we turn it and we say, even if that happens. I know who's in control. I know that God is in control. I know he's at work and working all things for my good and his glory. I just have to trust. So we turn what ifs to even ifs. And here it probably is easy to think, hey, what is Jesus doing? Waiting. What is he doing? Why, why isn't he going? Waits two days. And now he decides, hey, let's go to Judea. Let's go to Bethany. Let's see our friends. Verse 7, then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And if you remember in John 10, what happened in Judea just last week is they fled. Because the rabbi, and they said in verse 8, Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews try to stone us there. You're going there again? They, they try to kill us. Why are we going there again? They're thinking, hey, what if we go there and it ends? Our, the journey, the fun, hanging out with Jesus is over. Verse 9, Jesus responds, hey, aren't there 12 hours in a day? Jesus answered. If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. And he said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he's going to get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then just told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twin, said to the fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. Like, sarcastically, Thomas, hey, let's just go with him so we can die too. Because this ain't going to end well. Jesus' response is pretty, actually, kind of cool. He says, aren't there 12 hours in a day? And you're like, yeah, there's 12 hours, there's at least 12 hours in a day. 
What is he saying? He's reminding you and I, as we're going through pain and suffering, hey, life is short. But eternity, it's long. Life is short, eternity is long. There's a perspective. Hey, as believers, as Christians, we have hope of what is to come. So we press on through, through the, the short life that we have, even though we might go through various or different situations and trials. Because we have a perspective that eternity is long, and we are wanting those who are blind, spiritually blind, walking around in darkness, stumbling because the light is not in them. We want to help them see the light. So their hope and their eternity can change forever. But we only have this life to make that decision. So why First Peter says, and starting in verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice. We, we greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Even though right now you might be going through various seasons, or you're at the low, the valley. Why? So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. May you push through, run through life. The hardships, the good times, the bad times. So that along the journey, along the race of life, others, when they're walking through a difficult season or when they look at you walking through a, a, a difficult moment or you're, man, you, they, they would expect you would be at the valley. They look to you and they go, how do they have hope? Because what they're seeing is something more precious than gold that's been tested by fire and it's real, it's authentic. And it's because we look at a verse like Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's no comparison between, hey, the short life that we get to experience in the rest of eternity. Our hope is, is placed in, hey, the person in Jesus. Because of that, we, we hold on to the promise of like Revelation 21, that we, there's going to be a day where there's no more suffering, no more pain, no more hurt, that God is going to put, make everything right, make all things New. That's a promise that as believers we should hold on to. So in the perspective of pain and suffering, we go, hey, life is short, but eternity is long. So I should press forward, even in this moment where I'm going to struggle, to go, how do I move forward? How do I continue to keep taking steps? Because we know God is at work for our good and his glory. The story goes on, and, and he, again, he shows up on the fourth day. Jesus shows up on the fourth day because he's waited. 
And there's probably reasons behind why Jesus has waited to go. And one of those reasons is the, the messenger that was sent by Martha and Mary to find Jesus. It probably took him a day to find Jesus, right? And then Jesus' response is, I'm going to wait two days and then go. Well, Jesus probably knows, since we're going to read in a second, that Lazarus has been in the grave for four days. Jesus knows when the messenger gets to him, he already knows Lazarus has died. And so he waits two days where he, where he is because he's finishing the work of, in his ministry where he's at. And then he goes on the fourth day because there was a cultural reason. When someone had died in all oh, first few days, it would just be family uniting together, mourning the loss. No friends. On the fourth day, friends would be allowed to come into the house to start mourning with the family. Jesus, in his perfect timing, shows up on the fourth day to mourn, to be with both Mary and Martha. Look at it in verse 17. It says, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had been, been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house because we all handle grief differently. Martha needs, wants to be close to her friend, Jesus. Mary's still in this moment where she's wanting to be alone. But verse 21, it says, Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet, even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. That's cool. But he's, she's not understanding what he's talking about is, hey, I'm about to do a miracle right now. And she's missing it. And so she says, Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection in the last day. I'll, I'll see him again in heaven. I, I, I know that, Jesus. I know it. I believe it. And then Jesus said to her, hey, Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. The fifth I am statement. I am, which what brings dead things back to life. I am the resurrection and life. And, and the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Martha, do you believe, even if, if you've trusted in me, if you believe in me, if you've asked me to come into your life, even if you die, because life is short, you're going to live because eternity is long. Do you believe? And she responds back, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. She gets it, right? She's saying truth. She's responding back to Jesus with right theology. Here's what's important. We, we might be walking with people through pain and loss. 
what is the most important thing that you can do besides being there? Speaking truth. You know, something that always bothers me, especially as Christians, that we, we know the hope that comes with knowing Jesus, and then we lose someone. And then the response, in a way to show compassion and show love towards somebody, we just automatically go, they're in heaven. Like, like let me give you an example. Like, if we said, if you had an uncle, and their uncle, uncle Tom, but Uncle Tom most likely, probably has never come to a point of trusting in Jesus, If he hasn't come to that point of trusting in Jesus, he's not in heaven. That's hard. That's a hard reality, a scary truth. Because it means then, if he's not in heaven, where is he? But life is too short to to mess around with truth. To get wrong theology because eternity is long. So we have this short time, short life to get it right. So when we go in and we say, yeah, they're in heaven. And hopefully, hopefully they truly know Jesus and they are. But if they don't. If Uncle Tom never loved Jesus. Uncle Tom hated the idea of Jesus. Heaven didn't get another angel. By the way, that's really bad theology. None of us, when we die, become angels. So when we post it on Facebook, heaven got another angel today. Heaven didn't get another angel. We don't become angels. It's not found in scripture. That's not, that's not truth. That's not right theology. What is true? Hey, if they believe in Jesus, if they've trusted, if they've come to a point in their life where they've admitted they're broken, that they've sinned against a perfect, holy, righteous God, and they've asked him to come into their life, that's what makes them forgiven. That's what makes them saved. That's what's given them eternal life with Jesus in heaven. Nothing else. Jesus speaks truth to Martha. I'm the resurrection. I'm the life. If you believe in me, even though you might die, you will live. Do you believe this? Having that hope that comes from Jesus. Martha being encouraged goes back home to grab her sister. Says this in verse 28. Having said this, she went back, called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Could you imagine? You're going through, you're in the you're in the valley in your life. And you get told, Hey, Jesus is calling for you. He wants to be close to you. Even though you you might maybe have no clue how you're going to keep moving forward hearing that Jesus the Messiah the Savior of the world wants to be near you look at what Mary does with that as soon as Mary heard this she got up quickly 
there's, a, there's an excitement to her. Even though she's struggling, even though she's in the morning, there's something she, where she's like, I, I, I got to see him. I got to be with him. And she gets up quickly and went, goes to him. And, and it says, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were there with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. And they, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Same kind of response Martha had. Both taking a certain level of faith. But then Jesus respond, looks back at her in, in her response, and he says, it says this, when Jesus saw her crying, and, and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. And, and he says, where have, you, where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they, they, they told him, come and see. Verse 35, and then Jesus wept. So the Jews said, look, see how he loved him? Look, man, look how he cares. But some of them, they said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? They're not understanding the point of why Jesus wept. And honestly, a lot of people miss up out on the reason why I think Jesus wept. And it's because... Right before that, it said that he was deeply moved and troubled. See, most of the time, the uh, phrase that's given to Jesus when he's dealing with people is compassion. Jesus showed compassion on them. He, was, he, he looked at them and he, and he had compassion for them. That's not what's happened here. It's not compassion. He's deeply moved and troubled. And the reason I think that he's deeply moved is because he's looking at Mary, he's looking at Martha, he's looking at the friends and family, and they're all mourning, they're crying, and he's moved. Psalm 34, it says this, verse 18, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Jesus is moved because he's showing us something else about pain and suffering. Not only is it for the glory of God, ultimately, that God is going to work all things for your good and his glory. That's true. Not only is should we come with a perspective as life is short, eternity is long, and it, what we might have right now won't compare. It, there's no comparison to eternity that we will get to spend forever with him. But God promises you something here, that even though you, might, you will walk through seasons of your life where you have lows, that Jesus is close to the brokenhearted. That he loves you, he cares for you. So what is he doing here? Why is he, why is he moved in his spirit? Because he's looking at people he loves and he is moved by them. He's close to the brokenhearted. And the Bible tells us if we draw near to God, he'll draw near to us. So what should we do in our, our valley? Run towards him. 
But there's also more reasons why I think he's, he's moved and troubled because not only is there the people mourning who are friends and family of Lazarus, Mary, Martha, but there's people in that culture, what they would do is they would, weird, they would hire in people who are paid professional mourners. So on those first few days, when there's only friends or families allowed to be in, they're mourning, there would also be people who are mourning there who don't even know them, who are actually paid to be there. In fact, there would be flutes, there would be musicians, it would be like this weird emotional situation because these people who don't even know the person that's gone are, are faking like they're, they care, like they're, they're acting like they are truly mourning. And, and so when Jesus is looking at them, he's going, I see the people I love and I care about who are truly in pain and they're truly hurting. And I want to be near them. But then he's looking at the people who are fake mourners, who are mourning as people who, who do not have hope of what is to come. And he's troubled because they're putting their faith, their hope in the wrong thing. And then he's also troubled and he's angry because he's the I am, right? He was there in the beginning, in Genesis 1, when God starts to create. And he creates, day one. And at the end of day one, he steps back and looks at his creation. And what does he say? He says, it is good. Day two, he creates. What does he say at the end of the day, looking at his creation? He said, it is good. There's no evil. There's no pain. There's no suffering. It was good. Day three, day four, day five, he, he creates, and, and then he steps back at the end of the day, each one of those days, and he looks at his creation, he says, it's good. It's filled with my glory. It's good. Day six, God creates Adam. He looks at Adam and he says, Adam, it's not good for Adam to be alone. So he creates Eve. And in this, he, God forms a, a covenant relationship between a man and a woman that the Bible says, and God says is what he calls is marriage, where a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one. God's idea that in the very beginning he created. In Genesis 1, 26 and 27, when he creates people, he says, I created you in my image. In the image of God, I created them, male and female. I created them. And when he was looking at the end of day six, looking at his creation, he said it was good. There was no pain, no suffering. There was no death. So what happened? Because when we look around in our world, it, there's pain, suffering, death. Macro level, micro level, everywhere. It's a fall. Sin entered the world because we are no longer doing what we were created to do in the first place. Our purpose is to bring him worship, him glory, him honor. Reflect what God is like. And because we've all failed in doing that, as soon as sin entered the world, with that pain, suffering, death also came into it. And God looks at it. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin, the penalty of that sin is death. 
Because I, I look at it and I'm going, it is not good. And when Jesus is looking at Mary, Martha, at the situation around him at this moment in John 11, he's not saying it's good. He's saying it's not good. And that is why he's deeply moved in his spirit and he's troubled. He's angry. This isn't what I created. The pain and the hurt. We have a God who left heaven, who came to this world to die for us, to take on pain, suffering on himself. This is what it says in Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. We don't have a God who cannot understand us. We do, because he came into this world. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He did it perfectly. He chooses to go through, come into the world to choose pain, suffering, death, so that he can know and we can understand God understands what I'm going through. And then ultimately he goes to the cross to be the solution, the answer to solve pain and suffering ultimately. Sees the I am, brings dead things back to life. The story goes on, and it says, Jesus, being deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. And Martha's dead man's sister told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he's been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, didn't I, in a a way of soft rebuke towards her, didn't I tell you that if, if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, and Jesus raised his eyes and said to the Father, Father, I thank you that you've heard me, and I I know that you always hear me, teaching us about prayer, that God always hears our prayer. He goes on, he says, But because of the crowd standing here, I said this, so that they may believe you sent me. And after he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out bound hand and foot with linen strips with his face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. Hey, remove those grave clothes off of him because he was dead and now he's alive. As a result, you would think it would just be worship to Jesus. And this isn't something that we, we see very often. This was something we've never seen. Dead man coming to life. It says this in verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what, Jesus had, what he did believed in him, believed in Jesus. And you would be thinking probably like I am, like no duh, like you saw a dead man come to life. You, you would believe in that. Before, verse 46 says, But some that were there, guess what? They didn't believe. They still didn't want to trust. They still didn't want to give their life over to Jesus. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And, and so, this, so the chief priests of the Pharisees conveyed with the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we going to do since this man is, going, is doing many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Hey, if we just let Jesus keep going, the attention will be off of us and will be on him. 
So one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You are not, you're not considering that is, it is to your advantage that one man should, not, should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He, he, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus bringing a dead man back to life causes them to hate him. Hate him. See, what God is doing is he's allowing one man's plan for evil to be used for the good of all and ultimately for God's glory. That they would be eventually successful, right? Killing him, arresting him, beating him, mocking him, hanging him to the cross. But what they didn't expect is that he is God, that he is the resurrection and life, that he defeated the grave to bribe you and me with life, new life if we have trusted in him. As a result of that, there was a reunion in chapter 12, the beginning of it, where Jesus and Mary, Martha, and Lazarus meet back up. And it says this, And Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So, so they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. And Mary took a pound of very costly perfume like she's done before, a pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. She's serving him and, and, and worshiping Jesus. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intended to portray him, Why was the perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, now he said this, not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. He wanted the glory. He wanted the attention. He wanted to steal it for himself. He wanted to become his own God rather than worship the true God. And he had the money box, and he used to pilfer it what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. A large crowd of Jews then learned that he was there. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priest planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in him. See, it's hard to ignore a dead man coming back to life. But what the Bible says is that you and I, we are all dead in our sense. Dead in our sins. And we need to be made alive again. And that can only be done through Jesus and his work on the cross. If you haven't ever come to a point of trusting in Jesus, 
Let me just beg you for a second. Life is short. You aren't guaranteed to make it home. You're not guaranteed 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, but eternity is long. Jesus came into this world to endure pain, suffering, so that we can know while we walk through our own pain and suffering, our own valleys, that he longs, wants to be near to you, near the brokenhearted. That he wants to help you understand that he is working all things for your good and for his glory, ultimately. He, and he goes to the cross, taking on pain, suffering, taking on death, so that you and I, we can be made alive. We can be woke from the grave. And if you haven't come to him, it, it's simply as it's just admitting to God, turning to God, crying out to him. And you could do it in your car on the way home. You could stop by room one right over there and talk to a pastor after the service. And we would love to explain to you what it means to come to a, a, a real relationship with Jesus. But it just looks like you crying out to God, admitting to God that you're broken, that you sinned against a perfect, holy, righteous God. And that you believe that he came, Jesus came to the world to die on the cross as a substitute for you and for me to pay the death penalty for us. So you confess that, yeah, God, I want you to come into my life, make me new, change me, forgive me of my sins. And the Bible says that he does that. He forgives us, makes us new, declares us righteous. And because of that, we are promised, guaranteed eternal life with him. And it will not, there's no comparison to what we are gonna get to experience one day. For many of us, if we've made that decision to follow Jesus, no matter if you're on the mountaintop right now or you're on the, in the valley and you don't have a clue how you're gonna keep going forward, let me remind you what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. So whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do it for him. Live for him. Live to make him known. So in this light, little short life, we bring him glory because for all of eternity, that's what we're gonna do. If you guys would, stand with me and let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this day. Thank you that we get to come, God, and worship you this morning. Lord, for some of us in this room that we're on the mountaintop, we're, God, I pray that we would be worshiping you, thanking you, praising you for that. But even if we're in the lows or the valley in this season, God, that we're giving you all the glory that we're running towards you, that in our pain, it's causing us to draw towards you rather than draw away from you. Because of, Lord, that you care and you've provided a way out, the answer that we all need. You're the reason we sing, Lord. And we 
love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.